The Tower of Babel. Is that how it says it in yours? Some say Tower of Babylon. Really, the tower is only mentioned once or twice. It's really the city. That was probably the most offensive part. Uh, the tower had its issue, but the, 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 the greater emphasis really in the passages on the city. We just tend to, it's interesting how we focus on things. Doesn't matter, same story. We know it, we know of the, the separation and the confusion of the languages, and that's really what we focus on and, and, and we talk about, and it's, it's interesting to discuss, but there's more here than merely separation uh, or language confusion. There's a lot more going on as there almost always is in Scripture. There's, there's what's happening, and, and then there's the theology of it, the, the God act of it. Uh, Max Licato calls it the, the lower story, that's what we're doing, but there's the upper story, that's what God's doing uh, with what's going on here. We want to not focus on the lower story, though that's where we live, but we want to focus on the upper story, what God is doing and what he has for us. The, the people here, the, the descendants of, of uh, Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth, they are being disobedient. Go figure. There's kind of a theme in, in the Bible of humanity and our repeated, near constant disobedience. They were being disobedient and in, in not scattering and populating as they were told to. They, they have huddled uh, maybe even a holy huddle, except they seem to have forgotten God at some point along the way here, and, and they are huddling and, and wanting uh, the, themselves to, wanting to, to find security in themselves. Now this is a, a, what was the word I read yesterday? A dischronalization. It's out of order. Chapter 10 tells us the result of chapter 11. Chapter 10 says, and these are the, the descendants of the boys and, and the nations that came from them. And how did we get those nations? Chapter 11. So it comes after this, this explanation of who, where everybody was and uh, what, they were, how, what they were becoming culturally and linguistically years and years and years down the road. Now remember, this is written uh, by Moses uh, as he hears it from the Lord and then taught, and share, taught to and shared with Israel after they have wandered and probably not long before they're going into the promised land. And we see, I think, at least two messages, though there may very well be more. I, I see two prominent messages to Israel as they enter Canaan. Remember, Canaan is a name that's been mentioned a lot Throughout chapter 6 and 7 and, and 8 and, 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 and uh, well, not as far back as 6, after the flood, um, 9, 10. So as they enter the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, the, the first message that they hear for Israel is, as God's called out nation, because that's what they are, that's what we're going to get to, in chapter 12, the next chapter is God calling Abraham out and promising a great nation from them, from him. So as God's called out nation, it's a warning 
to not take pride in your calling, in your calling out. Well, this is the point where the narrator telling the story would say, that's exactly what they did. They totally took pride in their calling, in their calling out. We're Israel. We're God's people. And then they failed in their missionary mandate. The second message here is that there's a, a message that the cities in Canaan, the ones they're going to have, to have to conquer, starting with Jericho and just dominoes falling if they will trust the Lord, weren't too big for God. Jericho proves that. They, they didn't lift a finger to, to bring down the walls. God did all that. The, the proof is God saying, you're about to go into Canaan, but let me tell you what I did with a city, a fortified city, a city that was dependent upon itself, that had forgotten me, had left me. Let me tell you what I did with their prideful response. You've got nothing to worry about. It shows God's glory, this story. Shows God's glory in Shinar, the, the, the plain, the area where they settled between the Euphrates and uh, 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 Tigris, thank you, Tigris rivers, there Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, somewhere around where Babylon is or was. It shows God's glory at that time, at that moment. It shows God's glory to Israel. As they are going into the promised land, he gets glorified. I have led you these 40 years in the wilderness. I led you out of Egypt. I was the one that took down the city and the tower and split the people who were so full of themselves. I get the glory. But it shows God's glory now as well. We can come all the way up to here and see though he divided, though he separated, though he split people by language, today he is actually uniting those languages, uniting across those national, uh, nationality lines in Christ. That's Ephesians 2.14. God overcomes the dividing line through Christ. That's, that's one message for us today. Though he divided, though it was necessary to separate, he then, even though that was a punishment, provided the ultimate fix for that. A lot of narratives, a lot of messages we can get from it. But at this moment, the, the moment of the city and the tower, the moment of these people settling in Shinar, at this moment, God is tearing down not a tower, not a city, but pride. He's tearing down pride. This is the first humbling in the Bible, the first major humbling. Again, as we move through these, the, we can always point to, well, Adam and Eve got humbled. They sure did. Cain got humbled, sure did. Yeah, but here is a complete narrative about the humbling of a prideful people. Our big idea this morning, disobedience and self-sufficient pride result in God humbling you into dependent obedience. Now I want you to notice something about this big idea that I'm going to make clearer here in just a couple of slides. 
Disobedience and self-sufficient pride result in God humbling you into dependent obedience. See what I did there? Had some levels. This passage is a chiasm. And you think, and so? Next, next uh, screen. Oh, no, it's the, it's the passage? Yeah, it is the passage, sorry. Let's read the verse first, because that's what I plan to do. And that's the order of the slides. It actually says it right here in my notes, too, but some people can't read. Me. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And then I'll explain what a chiasm is, and it does matter. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said if they had begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon. For, the Lord, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth." Now the next slide says, this passage is a chiasm. Now what's a chiasm? A chiasm is a text that reverses itself both in theme and structure. So it says something in particular order, then it comes to a point where it says, but, and then it backs its way out of that by reversing the, the descriptors, the, the people, or whatever, the, the, the words that are used, to come to a new conclusion. Just written in your Bible, it's hard to see. And where do they get chiasm from? Well, chi is the Greek word for X. That's an X. That's also a chi in Greek. A chiasm is literature or uh, a passage or something that follows that shape. So the next slide takes out half the X. And so the text, the theme, the motif is the word you might use. And the, uh, the result or the message then come to a point and back out of it. All right. Everybody good and lost? Good. Here's our passage as a chiasm. I think that's the next one I put up there. Yes. All right. So it, you see in uh, the, the, the passages repeated words. So up at the first one, it says, whole earth had the same language. If you go down to the bottom, so you see A, and then you see A apostrophe. That means the, the opposite or the reversal or not A. So whole earth had the same language. Bottom of the screen, you see A, confuse the language of the whole earth. You see both the repetition of the words, but a reversal of the words. They had the same language, the language was confused. Compare B and not B. They were there, but 
B apostrophe or not B, they were from there. They were scattered from there. They were moved out from there. You see the same language, but a reversal. See each other, they said to each other. Not see in verse 7, the language, the, the confuse the language of one another. So they would not understand one another. See the same words, but a reversal. Uh, then D-E-F, let us make bricks, let us build a city and a tower. G, the hinge, the Lord came down. And then you see it all reversed. Okay, whole earth had the same language. There, each other, let us make bricks, let us build a city and a tower. The Lord stepped in. And now something's happening. And we back out of that. He does something about the city and the tower. They see these humans are building. We, let's, let us build. Oh, these humans are building. Similar language, but we've got a different perspective or a reversal. They say, let us make bricks. He says, let's confuse. They say to one another, he confuses each other. They are there. He moves them from there. They had the same language. He confused their language. Now, there are a number of reasons that, that writers would do this, and this is one of the best examples in the Bible. Some of these examples, some of this is so, so reversed, and I'm not going to remember which word it is. I think the verb for making bricks and the verb for confusing the language, Hebrew ha is mostly consonants. For years and years and years, they only wrote Hebrew with consonants. Then somebody come along, came along and said, you know, that, that's hard. We need some vowels. And they sort of made up the vowels and said, well, let's do this for this and this for that. But the consonants are the big deal. That's how you learn Hebrew. The word for making bricks, I think, is the letters, the consonants, L-B-N. But the word for confusion is the letters n b L. It's flipped. It's this way, then it's this way. Which is just the thought that went into it. The, 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 the literary artistry of this passage of Scripture. The whole point was to make it memorable. It, it doesn't work as well in English because we don't look at it this way. Our language, the, the, the words don't don't, uh, don't translate as well. We don't have the same letters. It doesn't work as well for us, but it does in Hebrew. It's beautiful in Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew that well. I, I read people who read Hebrew well, okay? So keep that in mind, and we're going to move through this in this pattern. As we move through the passages, you're going to see them move across the screen to letter G, and then we're going to move back, and that's how we're addressing this passage. We're going to make, see five points of these 13, something like that, lines, letters. The first point is disobedience. That's what we see first. And that's what we see in the first two letters, letters A and B, or the first two verses. Sometimes it works out in the verses, sometimes it doesn't. Remember, verses weren't there originally in Scripture. The whole earth had the same language, and they, the whole earth and all the people settled in Shinar. That's not what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to disperse and populate. And had they done what they were supposed to do, 
Obviously, they wouldn't have been all in the same place, but they also would have developed naturally different languages. We, saw, we see that after Babylon. Uh, I, I don't think, I don't believe, actually, that at Babylon we got French and Spanish and uh, uh, Romanian and Portuguese and Latin, but I think we got something like a Romance language which all of those came from. Those are all related. English, German, Dutch, probably some others, are Germanic languages. I think it's Indo-European or something like that because it brings some other. There are some really neat diagrams online you can look at see where languages came from. It started with a handful, but as people separated, even those languages that were very similar or the same at the beginning divided and dispersed. And so you get French and Spanish and Portuguese that sound similar in a lot of ways, but you really can't understand. You can pick out some words, but you can't understand everything. Uh, Spanish and Portuguese are close, but still there's some variations. That's what we see happening. Had they done what they were supposed to. It's what we see happening after they didn't do what they were supposed to, but God confused the language. And they would have been okay and, and had those languages regardless. But they had the same language, and verse 2 says that they settled there. They weren't supposed to be there. They were supposed to be everywhere. Fill the earth, populate the earth, spread out. It's what Mo told Larry and Curly all the time. Spread out. It's what God told the people. Spread out. Go, go somewhere else. It's what you tell your kids. Go somewhere else. God's telling them, told them to, and they were disobedient. Why? Why do your kids hang around you all the time? Because they want that comfort. That, that stability, that perceived safety, or just they want to be annoying. What these people wanted was this perception of safety. They wanted stability. They didn't want to spread out. Safety in numbers, right? Unity here. And in this case, the unity was a bad thing. The planes... And, and I say perceived safety because the plains, the, the, the valleys, they didn't offer protection. The hill country was great for Israel, for the Jebusites who were there before Israel took Jerusalem. They, they, you could build things up on hills. I have the high ground, Anakin. You know, it, the high ground's important. There is no high ground in a valley that's that's washed away or constantly inundated by floodwaters. You have to build high ground. They weren't safe, but they thought they were. You know why else they weren't safe? They were outside of God's will. I don't care how dangerous it seems, the safest place is always in God's will. But I might die. But yeah, but it's a safer dying than living. God's will is always safe. And so they were disobedient. The whole earth was one language right there in this one place. And they weren't supposed to be there. That disobedience of, of, of not doing what they're supposed to, y'all, sin begets sin. Every time. 
Sin gives birth to sin because usually when you sin, you got to do some other sin to make up for that sin or to cover up for that sin or just to continue that sin. I got away with that one. I can get away with this one. So they move from disobedience to self-sufficiency. Notice that when we get to their ideas of what they're going to do, they never talk about God. It's a whole bunch of let us and each other and we will and, and that sort of it. Me, 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 ourselves. Uh, let, let's see, how many? Is it, uh, we're in verse 3 now. They said to each other, let us. They used brick and they said, let us, ourselves. Let us, ourselves. Can't remember if I moved a finger on that one or not. Anyway, seven or eight, we will, eight or nine, eight or nine different times in two verses, they talk about themselves, never about God. Had they already, and we don't know how long it's been since the, 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 the boat, had they already moved that far away from God? Probably, it doesn't take us long. One generation, two generations, we're done. One generation only kind of cares, the next one doesn't at all. God's already said when they got off the boat, y'all just evil. That's just the way it is. So we're going to do some things differently. Not going to wipe y'all out again. He didn't wipe them out here. He confused their language. He took care of the situation. But you see the self-reliance, the self-sufficiency, all the self-reliance, nine times, there is, and, and there, there was, and there is a dangerous sort of unity. Dangerous unity is when the goal is disobedience and sin. Oh, we can be quite unified in our particular views and can be completely against God. We can do that as a church. Yeah, but we voted on it. Well, God does not care that you voted to do something he said you shouldn't be doing. It doesn't matter to him one bit. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't, that doesn't make you right. That makes us disobedient. There's a dangerous unity. And that self-sufficiency led them to talk to each other and plan with each other and say, let us and we will and ourselves. And then they said, let us make bricks. Bricks and asphalt are good. We can still find uh, what are called ziggurat towers in the Middle East, and, and they're built with bricks and asphalt, mud-fired bricks. Some, some bricks aren't as, as helpful as others. Sometimes they just dry in the sun. Those aren't very helpful. W uh, fired bricks are harder. They last longer. Asphalt lasts a long time, but not like mortar or some sort of concrete does see see there let, oh i know what we'll do let's build a city and a tower and we'll make the bricks well stone is the way you want to build something i mean look at the pyramids six thousand years old and they're still standing what's missing is the the outer coatings 
But the stones, these massive stones, and no mortar, by the way, these massive stones are still there. The, 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 the wall, the city wall, of the, the old city wall in Jerusalem, these huge stones, no mortar, just cut perfectly so they sit together almost seamlessly. They're still there. Why? They're stone. Who made the stone? God. The people cut it, but God made it. But they say, let us make bricks. Now, in their defense, there aren't a lot of stones in an alluvial plain between the Tigris and, and the Euphrates River. They're, they're just not a lot, it's a lot of mud, it's not a lot of stone. They were dealing with what they had. But, but do, you, do you hear the problem there? They weren't where they were supposed to be, doing the things they were supposed to do. So they had to make do with what they had, and what they had was very inadequate to the task. We get in the same spot. Oh, well, this, this is where we are. This is what we've got to make do with. Well, what are you doing there in the first place? It may be the case. God has put you there, and what he is providing you are the resources you need at the time. Obviously, that is not what we see in this passage. They are not where they are supposed to be. They are not doing what they are supposed to do. They are not worshiping whom they are supposed to be worshiping. And now they're having to make do with what they have in the area. Let us make bricks. It's just craziness that they thought their plan and methods were the best. Is there a witness in here this morning that can say it is craziness when I thought my method and my plan was the best. That's where somebody says, uh-huh, or yes, or turn to your neighbor and say, I don't like what that man's saying right now. Yeah, because you're mad because I'm right. That's all right. Me too. I don't like it either. Let us make bricks. The self-sufficiency. But that self-sufficiency, it's a snowball, even in the desert, that self-sufficiency leads to sinful pride. Oh, I'm disobedient. I'm not going to do what God says because whatever. And, oh, look, turns out I don't need God anyway. I can do all this stuff. Look, see, we can make bricks. Aren't I good? Aren't I important? Aren't I something special? Oh, the answer is no and no and no. But that's where they were. It was all about themselves. How do I know? Because they said it was in verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build. Let us make a name. There was some security need there. They needed a city. They needed walls. They needed a tower, they thought. They didn't. They thought. But mainly, won't people be impressed when they see our city, when they see our tower? No. What, what, do, we, what do we know the story for? Not for how high the tower was. They don't tell us. No, not for how... Uh, sturdy it was or how lasting it was because best of our knowledge it no longer exists we tell the story 
because they were disobedient and got reprimanded and got obedientized at the end. That's what they're na- remembered for. Oh, they made a name for themselves, but not in the way they thought. They wanted to make a name for themselves instead of God. They wanted the glory and not giving and didn't want to give God the glory. When you read about Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, after they come out of their exile in Babylon, you read that the glory was going to God. They were praying. They were doing this for the Lord. They were building a city. They were trying to be a people again, an obedient people, and the wall was part of that so they could build their temple and worship. If you read the story, the temple, the houses were built and the temple sat in, in disarray and, and disrepair for decades they sort of lost lost track and lost purpose but at the time anyway they were after the glory of God it's not a huge leap for churches to do the exact same thing it's not a huge leap at all I mean we 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 build buildings to, to stand out. And, and I'm not about to decry standing out. There's, there's a reason why you want a church to look like a church, especially from the outside, so people recognize it as a church. So I'm not, not saying anything negative about that. I'm saying what is the motive behind the building? Nameplates, memorials, buildings... I have an issue. I, I have an issue with nameplates being on things. That's supposed to be for God's glory, not the donor's glory. And then you can't get rid of it, don't matter how broke it is. I, I, we, this was a discussion in a, 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 a primarily pastor's group this week. There was a guy, a pastor of a church who was digging around in some stuff. He'd been there for a little while. He found the nameplate. I've forgotten what the nameplate was for, but the thing was gone, but they kept the nameplate. They didn't, they, didn't they didn't have it anymore, but you've got to keep that nameplate. So the thing wasn't even being used for God's glory anymore. It wasn't even a part of the church, but that person's name was still there. It, doesn't that, isn't that a little bit of fingernails on chalkboard? Eesh. We do it. The, the, the city and the tower, or the building and the steeple, or the complex and the steeple, or whatever that a church builds, it should glorify God. It should, the, the, the architecture, there was a guy that wrote for Worship Magazine, he was the editor of Worship Magazine for, for years and years and years, and he, he died a handful of years ago, I can't remember his name at all, but he, he would say architecture should worship, the space itself should be conducive, should worship. Of course, that changes over time of what uh, that would be, but even if the structure itself doesn't, depending on your view, actually worship, its function should be to bring glory to God. Its reason for existence should be to bring glory to God, not just look 
glorious. I love that we have these, these lights, and now the ones under the balcony don't work, so I'm not loving them at the moment. But regardless, I love that we can, that we can change the colors, and, and folks, uh, y'all, y'all normally, sometimes you notice, sometimes you don't. They, they change three or four times during the service. Um, the reason I do that is it's, it's, a, it's dividing the service. It's, it's encouraging a particular focus depending on what's going on. When I'm preaching, I, I got some feedback. The, the lights need to be brighter out there, and, that's, and we've changed the colors of them so you can read your scripture because that's the focus. When we're singing, more the light is up here because not because we who are on the stage want you looking at us, but we want your faces up. We want your voices out. We want this to be your posture because God is the focus. Everything we do should be to bring glory to God. Every decision, every, every, every location, every artifact, every function. Because if we don't, then we're getting over into this sinful pride of let us build, let us decorate, let us design a memorial to ourselves. Then we get to the linchpin verse, the hinge of it. Chapter, uh, verse 5. And we see God's supremacy. It says, the Lord came down. It's an ironic statement. They were going to build a tower to the heavens where God is. So, in theory, God should have been sitting there just, you know, minding his own business, doing crossword puzzles or whatever, cooking lunch. And suddenly, the tip of the tower broke through the floor. Well, what in the world? Not the whole world, because they were just right in one gathered place, right? What in the Shinar? <laughs> and, 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 and they thought he would go over and, wow, this is, this is something else. That's not what the passage says. The passage says God had to go down. Not to be too sacrilegious here, okay? Just, just laugh as if it's funny. God looks at an angel and says, I'm old. Could you? They're, they're building a tower all the way up. I, hold on, we got to go down there to see the tower. God came down. They built the tower to the heavens. They didn't make it. God came down. Their efforts and, uh, for the heavens... And the, the name they were trying to make for themselves were so great that God had to come down to see it. That's the irony of this passage, this verse. That's why it hinges right here. We fail. Anytime we think we are going to bring glory to ourselves, God wipes it out for us. You go sit in a dark room. Go sit in the activity center. No windows anymore, so it gets dark in there. If you've been to our um, Tenebrae service on Good Friday, you know it gets extremely dark in there when the lights are off. 
go in there and light a match when the li- all the lights are off. And that, that match, is, it's, it's actually going to make a pretty, pretty big impression in the room. You're going to be able to see quite a bit. And with that match going, and you're, you know, look, well, yeah, look, you can see the whole. Have somebody turn the lights on, all three switches, all nine of those lights. Which one do you, do you really see at that point? Oh, there's the, I see the flame, but it ain't doing nothing. It is, it is not lighting that room at all once all those lights come on. That's what God's glory does to our glory. Look at my little match. Aren't I bright? And God shows up, and suddenly nobody sees the match anymore. Because God's glory has shown, and it has completely, as a matter of fact, instead of a match that's still lit but, but not shining bright, his, his glory is like a rushing wind, and that match goes out. God came down because God is supreme over any city, any tower, any people, any nation, any idea, goal, or purpose. No matter how grand or how beneficial. But God, my goal was your glory. Even if he grants that. But did I tell you to? Is this where you're supposed to be? Is this what you're supposed to be doing? Because his glory is preeminent. His glory takes first place. And now we begin to move back. We've, uh, they brought us to this point with all that was going on. Now we're reversing it. The Lord came down and he saw the city and the tower that the humans were building. And they begin to realize, though they may not have known it, their own insignificance. And if they didn't, we certainly do. The hearers of the story did. They may not have known God came down, but they had not achieved the greatness they desired. They were minuscule. They were puny. They were tiny. They were nothing by comparison. They were God's creation. But when God's creation tries to take the place of the creator, God's glory shows up and we realize our insignificance. This city and the tower that the humans were building, there was no value to it because it was human-directed, human-helping, human work. Folks, if we want to show the glory of the Lord to our community... We have got to stop doing things we can do. Because that is human work that is human directed and usually human helping. We've got to do God's work that's God directed that only God can do. That's why I talk about the finances all the time and how God has provided year after year. No matter how we fretted and worried, no matter what horrible things have happened, no matter how many times we have to repair dadgum air conditioners, God still provides over and over. So I get to say, look, we had plans, and but God, 
It was God that did these things. It was God that made the plans because I believe that is our focus. When that is our focus, God shows up. When God is not our focus, well, God still shows up, but not in the way we would like. That's when he redirects. That's when he course corrects. So everything we are doing cannot be the humans are building God's church. Who does Scripture say will build God's church? God, Jesus. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus builds the church. Sure, we hire architects and contractors and all that, but it's Jesus who's doing it. We don't do those things until Jesus builds the church. God wasn't concerned with their plans. God wasn't concerned that their plan succeed. He wasn't worried when he says in verse 6, or verse 7 rather, um, no, I'm right, verse 6. He says that they've begun to do this as one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Was God worried that he couldn't put a stop to anything that they were doing? No, because he's about to do it right now. His concern was not this plan, this tower, that it might actually uh, reach the heavens. His concern was not that some new plan that they put together would actually succeed. They come up with this grand idea, oh, and that one worked, lo and behold. He's not worried about that. He is concerned about the level of sin they are capable of. If they will do this, they'll try anything if they can work together on it. If they can get enough people involved, there is no sin that they won't try to be a part of. Folks, we see it in our own society. When we see that, that gay marriage got a, a, a foot in the door along the way, it didn't take long for it to be, according to the Supreme Court, a constitutional right. It was an abomination at one point, but it slowly worked its way to where now, according to our government, it is a constitutional right. There's nothing we aren't capable of. There's no sin we aren't capable of if enough people get together and say, hey, let's do this. So God confused their language. God separated them. And they see their complete powerlessness. Verse 7, let's confuse their language. See, we're moving out. I even put the same letters. We're backing out. D compared to the previous D. Confuse the language so that they cannot um, understand one another or one another's speech. For all their assault on heaven or on the heavens, these people couldn't do anything against the God who inhabits it. Nothing. They were powerless. Oh, they can throw some bricks together, throw some uh, asphalt between them, build a big tower, maybe a wall. But God came down. And the way it says, he came down to see the tower. And then he came down again to confuse their speech. 
he had to even get lower to mess with the people. It's metaphorical. He's everywhere all at once. But he had to come down and get on their level, and their level at this point was low. He came down. Let's go down to confuse their language, and he did. Because they were completely at God's mercy. Right down to their language, their location, and their relationships with each other. Everything about our lives is in God, at God's mercy. You woke up this morning because God let you. You made it here to church because God let you. Those of you who chose to skip church this morning, God let you. That's just the way it is. We are at his mercy and his mercy alone. And if he chooses to step in and say, uh-uh, no more, he can, and he will, and he does. And we see that in verse 8, the last, the last verse. We see forced obedience. This is the humbling. The, the words from there in verse 8. So from there, the Lord scattered. They had gathered there because they hadn't. From there, the Lord scattered them. This is the, the re full reversal of the passage. This is where they get humbled. If they didn't know he came down to see the tower, if they didn't know he had to come down to confuse their speech, when he said, y'all scram, and they had to, they knew they were powerless. They were humbled. And he confused the language of the whole earth. They were forced to spread and to populate. Y'all, the same thing, don't think believers are immune from this. The same thing happened in Jerusalem with the early church in Acts. They had, uh, Pentecost had come in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the, the church began to grow. They're adding thousands, literally, every time they preach. And we get to chapter 6, and they're still in Jerusalem. What was the command? Go into all nations in Matthew. Acts chapter 1, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The command was to go. The command was to be fruitful and multiply. That's what I said last week. Be fruitful and multiply disciples. But they didn't. They weren't. They were staying where it was comfortable, where it was easy. And God brought persecution. It was no longer comfortable and easy. You may not tell people about me when you go, but you're going, is what God said. And they were dispersed and scattered, and they did you know why? Because true disciples of Jesus can't help but tell other people about Jesus. Now, the people weren't forced to worship God or follow him. I'm talking about the people at Shinar. He didn't make them worship him. They didn't make, he didn't make them take up their cross, take up their ark, take up their whatever, and follow him. But they did do what he said. When the time came, they had no option but to obey. Your season of confusion. You may feel like God has stepped down into the middle of your nice, tidy world and he has confused the language and scattered you all over the place. 
It may be the case, may very well be, that God is putting you in a position where you will have to be obedient, where you have no choice but to do what he said. He said, go here. I don't want to go there. And, you, and he said, fine, you don't have a house here. But look, now you have one over there. I'm over here. But it's going to be your choice whether you do what he says when you get there. How many of you had children or knew of children, kept children, whatever, who had some items of food they weren't particularly pleased with? And did you ever say, you're going to sit here till you eat it? Who won that most often? Probably the kids. Because if, if they didn't, that broccoli would still be on that plate 10 years later. Now, maybe you had some kids that would, they'd finally, because they really didn't, it was, really wasn't they didn't like it, they just didn't want it, you know. I, I get all that. But the, the, the ones that just, they did not like that, they were not going to eat it. You can sit on there, hours, no ice cream, no Ikeem. That was my niece. You don't eat your spaghetti, you're not getting any ice cream. No Ikeem. Because she wasn't eating the spaghetti. You may be that like that toddler, like that three-year-old, like that 15-year-old. And say, fine, I'll sit here and look at it, but I'm not going to eat it. You, you may do that to God. Fine, I'll go to that church, but I'm not going to serve. Fine, I'll go occasionally, but I'm not going to get involved. Fine, I'll do the bare minimum. I'll show up, but I am not going to take up my cross and follow you like you want me to. No, I came. Maybe your season of confusion and separation and scattering is to get you to the point where you finally have to say, yes, Lord, I will follow and serve you, or no, I am determined I will not, I don't care where you put me. I don't want to be around when the glory of the Lord shows up on choice B. Because you do have that choice. You have the choice to worship and follow him, or the choice not to. This morning, you will have the choice to give your heart to Jesus and trust him for salvation. And if you've listened to my sermons any length of time, you've had that choice at least every seven days. But what are you going to do? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Your sin has broken you. Your sin has ruined you. Your sin is disobedience, selfish, uh, self-sufficiency, and selfish pride. Will you give that to him today and say, No more, Lord. I want to follow you, Jesus. I realize my insignificance. I realize my powerlessness to save you, uh, to save myself. And Lord... I want to be obedient 
to you. Well, you can take that step this morning, trusting Jesus as your Savior. It's as simple as repenting of your sins and telling Jesus, save me. I can talk to you about it. Chelsea will be down here to talk to you about it. A couple of our deacons and Justin will be in the back to talk about it. Maybe you have some other things you want to pray about in this time of response. Some things you are going through. Some places where God has shown up. He is confused and scattered. And you're at the point now where you're absolutely where you were told to be. But you're at a decision point about whether or not you're going to be obedient to what he's told you to do while you're there. And you need to pray about that this morning. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that you you come down, you condescend to us, you come out of your heavens, you, you, you stepped out of greatness, Lord Jesus, you, you left the glory to become one of us so that we could be like you. God, turn our hearts. Holy Spirit, work on us. Draw us. And if there's someone here who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, I pray today will be their day to do it. They're in this place. God, you've brought them here. They're where they're supposed to be. Lord, I pray today they will be obedient. They will follow and worship. As we sing, Lord, I pray you'd work on every heart here. Not a one of us has made it. We are all on the journey. Lord, today for every one of us, I pray that we each take one more step toward being just like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll stand and sing and worship. You pray. You pray with us. But you make a decision this morning as God works on your heart. Let's sing.